Hello, everyone, and welcome to Timo and Julian Talk Philosophy. Hello, Julian. Hey. Ce mai <laughs> hey, sunt bine. <laughs> so I wanted to respond once, like in Romanian. <laughs> I'm great, sunt... and it's great to be back on like the show. <laughs> sunt bine, mulțumesc. Oh, you are making progresses. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. But mulțumesc mult. <laughs> But today we are not alone. For the first time, we have a guest in our show. In our show, and I also welcome Julian Sita. Good evening, Julian. Hello. How are you guys? <laughs> uh, it's actually difficult to keep you both, Julian and Julia. <laughs> to, it's to basically make... the same name, but in different yeah. languages. <laughs> so I should rather say "Good evening, Julia." <laughs> so that was Luxembourgish, and so we have today a guest from Luxembourg. <laughs> and <laughs> and. He is studying philosophy and history at Trier University in Germany. Um, and today we will go to Greek philosophy and we will talk about Aristotle. At first, um, Julien, you might tell us a bit about Aristotle himself and his achievement. Thank you. Yes, Aristotle is uh, one of the uh, greatest... Uh, um, This, uh, this is one of the greatest um, philosophers in ancient Greek, Greece. He is basically the one uh, who is in the top 10 or in the top three of the most influential and um, hardworking philosopher. So what, so what does him, what does him differ from Plato? I would say he um, he uh, complemented. Um, I mean, he completed uh, in some ways uh, Plato's work. I mean, uh, Plato's um, um, philosophy with a new system. He was heavily uh, heavily influenced by his master's uh, teaching. Uh, Plato gave him. Um, Many um, ideas and uh, um, inspir inspiration, but he um, evaluated um, his um, baggage he took from his master to own a system of ideas, which is uh, quite remarkable and which, how can I say it? Uh, became even more independent, but uh, um, remarkably influenced uh, by uh, from and from his master. Well, if I think of I think of Aristotle, I think of two things. The first thing is that he rejected Plato's teaching of ideas, yes. and the second is I think of his organon, the as father of logic. Yes, we can say that uh, Aristotle um, um, founded a, a kind of a, a, a school of uh, a lo a logic or first a very systematic uh, and logical teach teachings, but um, 
even if he rejected the uh, I, um, the 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 teaching of ideas of his master Plato, he came up with an, a, a category system which um, was a bit similar and which is uh, also quite remarkable. So just for those who do not know the impact of Aristotle yet, I think we should make a very, very small scientific uh, discourse through history so that everyone has has the same has the same knowledge and that we can go into actually discussing a work of Aristotle so uh, the very the very key is it like when we take Greek philosophy it starts like with the pre-socratic philosophy mainly the natural philosophers and like many of them lived of course in Asia Minor because it was a kind of clash of civilization because for example, several uh, islands had like, they were already very influ influenced by Asia. So of course you had, you already had like different worldviews and you, this made you think about something like, what is the world like? We then have Socrates in Greek, in, in Greek uh, city Athens, which is very special because this city was very conservative, right? So. It was like they had a, still a very profound belief in the gods, and it was even uh, there was a, a kind of conduct of crime called uh, asebia, which was the kind of um, like blasphemy. If, if you take it in a modern sense, it was not exactly blasphemy, but it was like a kind of blasphemy if you if you invented new gods or did not pay respect to the gods, something like this. And he was. And uh, Socrates was executed in 399, and one of his teachers was Plato. And we know that something very curious about Socrates is that, you know, many people think that philosophy is asking the questions about why, but I think which is important is that Socrates actually asked questions like, what is, you know, so it was actually what is questions, like what is justice? What is virtue? And Plato took up this concept in his early dialogues, like when you take the Laches, where he asks about what is courage. And we can say that Aristotle, as a student of Plato, he tried to formalize it into a kind of science. Mm. So he invented a lot, of course, Plato already uses this kind of logic. Plato is a very, very logical when he used the dialectic method and he used also the diuretic method. And so with Aristotle, we do have two, two, two things. We talk about induction and deduction. And, Plato, and, and Aristotle makes clear that deduction, the deductive method uh, is the only logical method while an inductive method is invalid because if you take if you take one thing and you look at another thing and you look again at another thing you cannot be sure that the next thing you look at won't be different but if you so you cannot from a few individuals take the generalization but from uh, but if you know the general rule you can deduce it down to the singular entity so this is, to put it in a nutshell, Aristotle's logic. Um, so there is an interesting work 
the Nic Nicomachean ethics. And maybe you want to tell us something about the Nicomachean ethics. Yes, it's a, a, the work itself is quite remarkable because it is in some ways also mysterious. I mean, around uh, the title is uh, is a bit tricky because um, we we cannot know for sure if he named it after his son or after his uh, father Nicomachos. But the very intriguing uh, part of this uh, book is about um, um, some core. Uh, values for um, good life. This is uh, what philosophy is um, 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 very much keen since Socrates and as some measure also uh, for the sophists uh, who lived um, more or less at the same age of uh, Socrates. So the main point is like the first philosophers, they still had like a, a great connection to metaphysical questions. If you, if you take the first philosophers, like they, they try to, uh, they, uh, they try to give like the answer, like what was the first element? And they had the kind of like with Empedocles that there is love and strife. And if the two come in harmony, you have the world order, but things that are good are more like if, if they are attracted to love and the destructive destructive things are kind of attracted to strife, but both have to like, str they struggle and they get into harmony, which reminds us a bit like of the Chinese yin and yang, or, you know, two forces that are still battling and even Plato still had the good. So to say a metaphysical force, a kind of God who is, who is responsible for everything, which is good. And the interesting thing with Aristotle on the opposite is that he's not an idealist anymore. He takes materialism as ground. So even Aristotle's vision of God is kind of materialistic. It's a kind of God for him is a kind of machine. God cannot act differently than he does. So he kind of acts automatically. And for this reason, it seems like Aristotle's theology is very thin and mm -hmm. he focuses more on more on ethical questions and of course on the tools of science so he did not so he did not use a lot of metaphysical speculation uh, i i think and this is something very it's very new and maybe a, a certain ground for the further reasoning because if you look at the other greek philosophers that came then partly because from that time on, you have the cleavage of idealism and materialism, but those who were materialists, they focus, when they talk about uh, good and bad, they talk about like the virtue of good and bad, like to say it's about ethical or, or normative behavior, which is good or bad, and not anymore about a God or a force, which is good or bad. And you also find the same, like with the Romans, when you look at Seneca, uh, Vita, Beata, the good life, it's also, of course, to a certain degree, rather a morally good life than a good life according to God, right? So, so Aristotle is probably the founder of, of this kind of school where the good is, a, is rather found in virtue or the virtuous practice. Hmm. Yes, what, uh, what the Greek called arete, 
pronounce it correctly, I think that uh, corresponds more or less to the concept of virtue. Uh, yes, and the interesting thing is that for Aristotle, virtue is always the middle path. So mm -hmm. if you are not in two extremes, but you choose the middle path, then you are virtuous for Aristotle. Exactly. Uh, Julian, do you have a question to Julia? Um, until now, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, sure. So, Julia, uh, maybe you want to give us more details about his uh, Nicomachean ethics. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, as you, uh, you said it for, for Aristotle, the evil, uh, anyway, uh, no, sorry, the good doesn't know extremes. For him, as um, all, all the virtues, um, um, the abstinence of excess and the, um, the abstinence of abstinence, like uh, uh, courage is um, the abstinence of uh, um, uh, how is it in English? Uh, the abstinence of fear and uh, uh, and uh, um, not uh, uh, not uh, driving it to extreme. Or what in what we in German call tolkun, not uh, to um, to make uh, things to uh, um, uh, not um, I mean not thriving things too far. That yes, not not to cross the border too far. Exactly. Or to cross any border in a that you go too far. But uh, so courage is the absence of fear. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, I mean. Um, the the absence of an absence. Uh, I mean, I mean, fear is uh, exactly uh, the uh, um, the absence of uh, courage. But there is also something other, the um, the surplus, um, and this is um, what. Um, uh, what uh, de de defines uh, the borders of uh, uh, something virtuous, but so so if absent, absent so if so the absent. courage is absent, then we have fear. Yeah, uh, yeah yes, uh, that uh, the, uh, exactly. But um, the, but um, uh, I uh, how is it? The thing is. We have um, we, ha we have to exclude the excess and the abstinence to have um, the the right middle path to go. So you know that's very interesting because if you look into Plato, mm -hmm. um, and you find in book I think it was book four of his his Republic, you find that the definition of courage is knowing knowing what is dangerous or knowing about the fearful. So it is the kind of that courage is that you actually know what is dangerous and that you have the knowledge that you can that you can go through that uh, fe fearful. So uh, so it is not like it is not like the absence. I mean, of course, it is a certain absence of fear, but not in a sense that it's the absence of any fear. But it is you know what is dangerous, and therefore you don't fear it because you know. You have the knowledge about, uh, like, let's say, how, 
how far you go or you have an idea about how far you can go so it is uh so it is uh if i see it right it looks inspired by plato but mm. i have to admit i do not know the Nicomachean ethics by heart. I mean, I have an idea of it. I, I also read it, but it's, it's also some, some time ago. So yes, I, I have some idea about his political view, about friendship, about how, how to gain felicity in the long run. But about this thing, this is something, and I didn't hear before that, that uh, Aristotle on this is, is this close. So maybe, uh, is there is there any any chapter or anything that where you think that that we shall take a look at. I think one of the most interesting chapter is uh, the, the last one. If I remember correctly, he talked in the last chapter of the Nicomachean Ethics about the highest good. Yes, yes, exactly. It, it, is, it, is, it is very important. Um, let, let me see. I have, I have the Nicomachean Ethics here. Um, it in English, it is book, which is funny because last thing we talked about friendship and friendship or love is uh, book eight and book nine. These are the two books on friendship. And then we do have uh, the last book, book 10, about pleasure. And of course, uh, there are also the, is the talk about um, reasons for, for discussion, pleasures, and also Mm, arguments uh, uh, about about pleasure. So maybe maybe when we can take a look inside. I have here the Nicomach the Nicomachean Ethics of Aristotle, translated by Peters, tenth edition, London, nineteen six. So let me let me find that chapter and then we will discuss about this. Um, mm. Because, because we want to know, of course, the highest good. And actually, it is very important to know the highest good because it was for the, for the Greek people, eudaimonia. It is like the, the felicity is the, is the thing that people should attain. It is that what Seneca called vita beata, the beautiful life, the good life. It is actually like for the, it is, the equivalent to eudaimonia of, of uh, Aristotle, and actually the whole philosophy of antiquity goes towards this goal. It is always people strive for the good life. It's the it's the highest good. And um, I found I found a chapter. I found the chapter, um, book ten, chapters. One to five are about pleasure, and it starts with reasons reasons for discussion. Pleasure. I want to. I will cite. I will give a citation, and we talk about this because the tenth book starts with citation. Our next business, I think, should be to treat of pleasure. For pleasure seems more than anything else to have an intimate connection with our nature, which is the reason why in educating the young. We use pleasure and pain as the rudders of their course. Moreover, delight in what we ought to delight in and hatred of what we ought to hate seem to be of the utmost importance in the formation of a virtuous character. For these feelings pervade the whole of life and have power to draw a man to virtue and happiness as we choose what pleases and shun what pains us. End of quote. So what would you say about this introduction? 
it is uh, quite uh, fascinating and also a good um, jump point. It uh, brings uh, the reader um, to, <clears throat> um, to introduce a, a very impo um, Im important um, a chapter with a very good um, starting, po starting point, talking also about um, the basics of human nature. And uh, yes, I think um, Aristotle uh, tackled quite well um, the natural feelings and effect of um, uh, the human uh, uh, psyche and how um, we uh, sh uh, should educate and live with it. So, so the discussion of the of what is pleasurable is very important because uh, he talks about pleasure and pain, and it seems mm -hmm. evident that ple that pleasure seemingly is something good, and we want to uh, uh, we want to avoid pain. So, could mm -hmm. we say that pleasure that 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 like pleasure that things that are pleasurable are also good, and that things that cause pain are evil, or is this? Fought to Epicurean. I would say that um, he is right that there is um, um, an, 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 not an evidence, but um, something that seems to, to be good and seems to be evil. But then um, we could also go into um, uh, the nuance and say that uh, there's something which brings us pain in the short term, but something good at the end or at the long term. And yes. So, and I think for the, the, educa the education uh, is um, um, place very much with pain and pleasure and it should also um, um, give a, a child uh, the understanding which pains or pleasures are worth or not worth it. It's like uh, how I'm training my dog. I, I, I think um, all day to him, um, this, he should not do this or this, or else why? get punished and um, if he uh, repeats the same uh, action in the same conditions he get even more uh, sanctioned so it is um, it, it, it is uh, logic that the education should focus on the uh, higher goal um, yes. Good. Yes, so so we see we see this when, when, when the book continues. Actually, the next passage exactly says, quote, and it would seem that the discussion of these matters is especially incumbent on us since there is much dispute about them. There are people who say that the good is pleasure and there are people who say on the contrary that pleasure is altogether bad some perhaps in a conviction that it is really so, others because they think it has a good effect on men's lives to assert that pleasure is a bad thing, even though it be not for the 
generality of man, they say inclined this way and are slaves to their pleasures so that they ought to be pulled in the opposite direction. For thus they will be brought into the middle course. But mm -hmm. I cannot think that it is right to speak thus for assertions about matters of feeling and conduct carry less weight than actions. And so when assertions are found to be at variance with palpable facts, they fall into contempt and bring the truth also into discredit. Thus, when a man who speaks ill of pleasure is seen at times to desire it himself, he is thought to show by the fact of being attracted by it that he really considers all pleasure desirable for the generality of men are not able to draw fine distinctions. It seems then that true statements are the most useful for practice as well as for theory for being in harmony with facts. They gain credence and so incline those who understand them to regulate their lives by them. But enough of this. Let us now go through the current opinions about pleasure." End of quote. So this is actually the very first, uh, very first part, very first chapter on pleasure. So here we see the thing that Aristotle also disagrees on just looking at pleasure and pain but that we have to understand like actions and facts and that we cannot simply reduce it to a feeling. Yeah, that's true. Yes. Yeah, um, uh, to see the, the big picture. <laughs> um, but, but I think it's uh, um, often um, enabled through experiences how to how to know which uh, um, middle ground is the uh, most idealist uh, the best way possible yes interestingly because we talked now we talk now about pleasure and pain and of course we could also talk we could also bring in the question like of we talked about fear so fear itself is more uh, painful feeling right mm -hmm. yes so in book three uh, first we should tell our readers if you read the book you see that every chapter builds on so when you have book 10 what we talk about now we have like all the arguments from before that go that uh, like they strive towards this great final and in book three uh, six to nine um we find there's a very interesting work by Cursor, by the way, and I will cite now from Cursor's work. He, he cites uh, five charges that are in book three and that are act actually about this, what we talked about, about courage and about the question of fear. And let's try to bring this part of chapter three and chapter 10 together because Cursor writes, uh, quote, Aristotle of these five charges, I shall argue that Aristotle A does not limit courage to life-threatening situations on the battlefield. Uh, sorry, I, I should start again. I shall provide a passage by passage interpretation of Aristotle's account of courage in Nicomachean Ethics 3, 6 to 9, which will acquit Aristotle of these five charges. I, I, I missed the beginning of the sentence. I shall argue that Aristotle A does not limit courage to life-threatening situations on the battlefield. B is right to maintain that courage governs both fear and confidence c applies a plausible doctrine of the mean to courage 
D, appropriately distinguishes courage from continence, and E, does not affirm that courageous acts are overall pleasant for courageous people. End of quote. Uh, wait, I tell you where you find it. It is, um, it is uh, in Howard Cursor, Aristotle's account of the virtue of courage in Nicomachean Ethics 3, 6 to 9. Mm. And it was published in the Society for Ancient Greek Philosophy Newsletter 183 in 1996. So what we see is Cursor argues that courage itself um, must not have a certain must not ha have a certain feeling for the person who is courage or to or does not have to have a certain feeling for the courageous person which is the pleasant feeling which means courage behavior is not always pleasant for courageous people and we have now seen in chapter 10 that when we talk about the pleasant things and the painful things that seemingly if we take in account book three, that seemingly things that are not pleasurable to us on the, let's say on the level of feelings are like pleasurable on the long run because it is the better decision for the soul, right? So how, how, would, you, how would you bring this part of book three and book 10 together? Because seemingly here we see an argument which is against that always just pleasurable things are good things because seemingly something unpleasurable might be good for, because courage behavior is good. So, um, Howard Cursor was in the, um, in the Aristotle researcher who commented the different factors about um, Aristotle's vision of courage. Yes. This is interesting. So I noted that um, courage is not the same as um, continence. That's so perhaps a, one of the most intriguing um, of the four elements um, I've noticed. So, but I. But do you agree in general that the pleasurable does not equal always the good because a person might be courage and has to choose a painful action to act better than if he just chooses simply the pleasant thing. Mm. Yes, exactly. If, if someone um, wants to be courageous, he has to um, to um, how we can say this, put himself together to do, um, to act uh, rightly without an ex um, self-made excuse and um, to, um, to um, 
um, to be obedient toward um, some principles, not um, and, and not um, uh, doing what uh, is uh, told to do is not necessary uh, kind of courage, but to um, and to con confront fears which um, are by definition painful and so um, to, um, to do uh, what uh, uh, um, you, uh, you I mean to do uh, what you should uh, achieve okay and you mentioned that you were surprised by the fact about continence and courage. And I have, of course, the, the passage where he writes about this so that we can that we both can be stunning about the way he writes this, because it's a very, very fascinating way how Kursa writes it. He writes, quote, continence and katreya is illustrated when the parameters of the fear and or confidence targets are not medial, but the parameters of the choice and action targets are medial. Incontinence, akrateya, is illustrated when the parameters of fear and or confidence targets and the action target are not medial, but the parameters of the choice target are medial. Vice is illustrated when the parameters of the fear and or confident targets and the choice and action targets are not medial, end of quote. So it is actually something where we are already very deep in detail. So it seems that there we saw that virtuous behavior is always you act medial or you act in a middle way. And seemingly, if uh, there's a certain parameter which is not medial, then you act in a continent way. And if there's another parameter where, which, uh, where you are in the middle way or medial, but where you are not, but the, where you are the where the other parameter is not in the middle or medial way, then again there is a certain extreme of some of the parameters, and you act incontinent. So it is kind of Aristotle shows that, like only when you have a balanced action, then you act virtuous. While when there is just like one extreme, which is a very very strong parameter, then it might be that you are driven or that towards that parameter or that you strive towards that and which will lead you that you get away from the middle way probably or or that you get to a certain direction we know this is from his political view you know it's that like there if there is like only the rich people governing it will be an extreme and if only the poor people are governing is an extreme so the rich and poor and all the classes it has to be like put in the middle you know because because if uh, because uh, if only the people on the extremes are the one uh, like who are governing, the ones who are rich will only protect their richness, and the poor will only try to survive. And so both will uh, start like uh, they have special interests. And Aristotle thinks that those who are more in the middle, they will not they will not be extremely the ones. Who will take everything away because they are hungry, but they will also not because they do not have so much. Probably, I, I guess so. This is my interpretation. Or they will probably not try to preserve everything because they are not the ones who have everything to lose. You know. So this is this is the thing about the middle way. And so, of course, courage. We see is that when we talk about uh, when we talk about fear, is that it's not about 
do I understand it right that it's not about overcoming fear in general, but that it's about you about um, that you are able to distinguish uh, these two parameters, that you are able to distinguish courage from continence, and that you are able to see what is good on the long term. Yes, I mean, I think it's it's uh, this more nuanced approach of Aristotle, of, um, um, how he described courage, not only overcome fear, but, but uh, also much uh, uh, more systematic um, idea of it. And what, what is so systematic about it? Is it more that you that the way we see that he takes into account several parameters and say, hey, if you take this and that, then you have this. And if you take that and that, then you have that. Is this the thing that is systematic or is it what, what's, what makes this approach newer than, for example, Plato's approach? Hmm. Um. I don't know how to formulate um, and from it seems uh, let's say it bit um, complicated, but I think I think yeah it's uh, um, I think it's uh, like you said um, it's with um, all these uh, parameters and with um, all the characteristics he added that um, it makes his definition of courage more um, nuanced. Okay, so it is it is the way that because he takes he takes it like um, step by step on a logical uh, on a formal way is because he always goes on and rules out a thing and then shows that the like you have two things and he rules one out one out and so there is one thing left and then he takes a look inside that thing and sees what it contains and sees it could be a or b and then he rules out probably b and then you he looks into a and sees there is like one and two inside and then he sees like okay it's not one it is two and then he, so it's the way he goes inside the things mm. yes it's um, a bit more complicated uh, as uh, Plato did, but it's also in a very proper manner. It's, uh, we can see here a uh, uh, very clear kind of reasoning and logical deduction. Okay, Julian, until now it's Timo Talks philosophy. How about you? What would you ask? Um. <laughs> Yeah, so you talk, um, because I'm just picking up on some uh, thing because I'm really not, uh, I'm not knowledgeable at all when it comes to the subject. But one thing that maybe I picked up is when you talked about like um, uh, suffering, I believe at one point. Yes. And yes. um so basically it was like um, suffering can only, I don't know, can be in a way virtuous if I understood like the idea, right? Actually, maybe maybe it's because we, 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 we have the feeling that pain is suffering, but I don't think that for Aristotle, it's here about suffering in general. It is more like you have like you, you have to choose an action and there are two ways you can do it. 
like normally you might have one extreme view and you might have another extreme view but both views are wrong because you can only act in a good way if you act more temperated more like if you act more calmly and in the same way it might be that the that when we do an action we of course we always choose the way which is more most pleasant to us you know we always like to do it in the most in a way which is most suitable most simple most very very do not have any have to tackle anything but it might be that this way is actually one of these two extremes which means that on the long term the outcome is actually <clears throat> not virtuous because you are driven to one of these extremes uh, which means that it's not balanced and so yeah but on the other hand you know you said this uh, scenario in which we would not choose only like the actions that will usually result in us receiving pleasure. But on the other hand, I see another extreme and this is like a more Christian centric one in which people are kind of encouraged to suffer in the idea that suffering in its way might bring a type of um, pleasure afterward. It's like- Like you know, salvation. They, yeah, like salvation, but I think it's that, uh, you know, martyr syndrome, you know, in which people basically are encouraged to suffer as, um, I don't know, a means of living. And at the end of the day, I think that to a very big extent, people are naturally inclined towards like seeking pleasure. I mean, it's, it's like a type of masochism to actually go and like to be suffering as something to strive for. Well, I think strive for is maybe a little bit strange, but to actually make it an integral part of your life, you know, as uh, normalizing it. Yes, you know, the point is that the big question of Greek philosophy was like, how can we have a happy life? How can every one of us live in the most, in the best way possible? So it is like for the ancient Greek, it was not like the Christian thing that you get that you get born and you are and you have to accept your faith. If you are lucky, you are the king, and if you are poor, you are you are a poor peasant who has to accept his faith in the hard life to be to uh, to and then if you master this task of your hardships you will you will receive rewards and after you are after salvation <clears throat> about about aristotle he does not have this kind of metaphysical questions he for him it is like it is also not like to be happy at the moment to him it is that when you look back to your life if you look at the and if you look back on your life that you can say i lived a happy life so it's not happiness for you choose a happy action now but on the long run you did not have real happiness but you have to choose in a way so that you can say in the end of your life i lived a I, I my life all over all was a quite successful one was a quite happy one i think and that what usually the parts like you as you said like Christianity when it comes to like the idea of happiness is like you suffer but in a way <clears throat> the salvation and happiness 
that you will obtain at the end is like eternal in comparison to maybe, I don't know if, uh, if um, this is your point, but I know like the pre, like the pagan perspective was the fact that life in itself is like a cycle of like um, bad and good moment. It's not like there is like an end point in which you will obtain like permanent happiness. It's just, you know, people always go like few years of their life in which, you know, they are more prosperous, things go good for them. And yes, in maybe everything is like really bad. You know, you get very ill or like one of your parents die. And, you know, these cycles repeat again and again until we die. So it's not... Uh, I think this idea of eternal happiness as I, uh, this and this is from my personal study because I didn't study Greek philosophy. Um, this idea of like um, eternal happiness, it's much more was pushed or you see it like in um, Christian thinking. You know, maybe you know people in an Epicurean discourse or people who are, who are fond of Epicurus tend to say, like you have to, uh, you, it's the best way to, ach to achieve pleasure and avoid pain. And this is, for example, something very important to understand utilitarianism. And Aristotle is not, it does not, for example, does not agree to, 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 such, to such an idea. Aristotle thinks like that you might have to, to choose something which is, uh, which right now is difficult for you, which is not like, actually where you have maybe to sacrifice something but on the long run it will it will be better that you go the let's say the more the harder way the more difficult way than if you go if you uh, choose the pleasant way always on pleasant on on on, on, be, on accumulating pleasure and avoiding pain because this kind of pleasure is only of short term this is just now but you have, but you have to behave in a way that you act virtuous because this is the way you. If, or that is the is what Greeks generally think that if you ha act virtuous, it is good for your soul. So of course, it is the question on how do you achieve the how do you achieve the highest good for your for your soul that you have a healthy soul and that when you die that your soul will be kind of clean so uh, though of course as i said aristotle is not the one who does the metaphysical speculation what comes after life it's more about that he thinks like okay uh, that in the end of the life how do you have attained the most highest good or how did you come close to the most highest good and this is like that he through virtue and virtue is always does always mean avoiding its ex extremes and if you say you should always choose pleasure over pain. It is a kind of extreme already, you know, because you choose an extreme view, which means always pleasure, never pain. And this is not a virtuous way. And the courageous person, the courageous person seemingly knows about fear, but uh, it, he is uh, he is not driven by fear because he um, it's it's a bit tricky because I don't know Aristotle in the deep detail here but I think as far as I understood him until now and you know the f interesting thing is that people who read Aristotle some people are still like have have read Aristotle for thirty years and they still develop new ideas so it's it's not something that I can say I read it and I have a final view so I'm also developing my view and I think like that about 
because he's, she's really a difficult writer and has a lot of deep wisdom inside. But I think one thing is about that, that when we go to fear, there is like, if you are always driven by fear, you cannot enjoy your life. But if you have no fear, then you will probably have the problem that you become a kind of arrogant, that you don't see life anymore, that you that you dare too much and put yourself into danger because you don't have any fear anymore. And maybe the courageous person in a, in, in a certain kind is able to, to, uh, to distinguish uh, about, for example, about confidence and also the continence. That we that we said so that there are different parameters that uh, and that he sees that he might have to act, to be couraged that he acts in a way that is right now not pleasant to him but that will that will in the end have the better outcome. We all we all know this. I've, I take an everyday life example. We all know this. Maybe we have to go to our boss and tell him a bad news. This is not a pleasant thing. But it is better to tell him than not to tell him, you know. So on the long run, it is better when you when you are when you when you have given him the news than trying to avoid the the pain that you might have by telling the, the message. So here you might be courage, but it is not pleasant. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, I totally agree because. Um, just seeking pleasure, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, I can relate this, like, even, like, in many other ways, even, like, in, like, the greatest, like, uh, works of art that you have in humanity were born out of, like, suffering, so if, like, uh, you know, suffering would have always been avoided, maybe we wouldn't have progressed as we did because I think under suffering and pain, usually our minds work very differently than when we are in a very relaxed, I mean, when we are in our comfort zone, to say so. Yes. So this is a this is very important. Virtue for a long, long time was understood under the influence of Aristotle as a kind of middle way. And by the way, it is very interesting that also in Buddhism, where you want to overcome suffering, how do you overcome suffering? It is by going at first a middle way. You get, you get rid of extremes because if you attach to someone too much, you suffer. That's one extreme. If you, however, um, if you are always if you don't care about others, that's the other extreme, but you might be only egocentric because you only care about yourself and not the others. So that's the other extreme. So on the one hand, you should not cling too much on others. On the other hand, you should let your ego go. So again, you have a middle way to overcome suffering because if you get driven to one extreme, it will cause more suffering and you will not be able to, to, to push forward your teaching, your practice. So if you are on the middle way, if you are in this way, you can like get insights and push forward your teaching. And I think this this is this is a this is a very important point. So going getting away from extremes is always that you have the chance to look left and right. You know, yeah. you can't you can't you have the global overview. 
So yeah. I think we should go to the summary now because we had a very productive session. And I'm also very proud of Julien because it is, I think, his first time that he ever speaks about such a subject in front of the public. And I think, and even a very difficult, we, we chose a very difficult yeah, it's subject. Very diff I mean, I so, can speak so for myself I'm, just listening, not just like he did so much thinking. I just listened and I, uh, I had at one point the sensation that I got overloaded, you know. Just from yes. because there are so many, um, like you. I, I feel that when we debate such subjects, I mean, we debate them, debate them all the time. But it is sometimes like unavoidable that you kind of get stuck at one point when you receive the information because it's very, uh, it's a lot, and uh, I think. Oh, and this is like maybe an advice for our listeners and not only for our podcast, it's like for academic information and knowledge in general. Don't expect that uh, from you when you like came in, you come in contact with uh, information, with some knowledge in the first time. You, already, you should expect that you already have to understand it at a deep level because that will be many times not the case. It kind of settles down as time progresses. And when you encounter uh, or you go through certain situations or scenarios, you kind of tend to see it more in a context and to see the links between uh, the concept that you use because when you come in contact with it for the first time, it's like very raw. So it's not something unusual to be like a little bit scared that you don't understand everything that you hear, you know, at the first presentation. Yes, um, let's see. It's a, it's a, 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 a in fact, um, uh, um, like in, 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 uh, and philosophy together and, and a, a, a um, process a approach that something um, um, one should have steps by step and um, I think uh, for me and for an um, um, new podcast here is it's uh, it's a uh, maybe um, um, and and what is it it's a uh, and not uh, every day that one here will participate in a philosophical debate with other, but it's, I find it good to, um, to begin with one step, like if, if philosophy has also its uh, first, um, uh, its uh, starting points. Like Aristotle said, it wonder, philosophy starts and it's uh, I found um, Christian approach also very marvelous. It's, uh, it's like um, it's actually a pleasure to uh, philosophize that told me also to uh, think more about and yes also the um I could say it the, the one of the last chapters or uh, in the last chapter. Of the Nicomachean ethics is also that it's uh, uh, very uh, uh, pleasant uh, to think about things. Um, and uh, that philosophy is one of the 
highest pleasure. And ironically, those of us had um, often enough money or enough time to um, think about uh, the, the way things are. Yes, this is the thing we discussed about uh, the education when we had the when we had the episode about education. That the problem in the past was, of course, that though, that people, though they were financially in the, that though they were financially independent and therefore could do a very pure reasoning, the problem was that it was only limited to those who were financially independent. So while it was more difficult for those who were, let's say, from lower classes because they did not have the time and the and the money to do their to do such kind of researches. So yes, of course, on the one hand, that that that's uh, that's, uh, that's actually a very interesting thing about the Greek isonomia because it means like the rule of the equal, but it also means the rule not not like that everyone is equal, but that you are equal among your peers, which means that the that the ones who were citizens have the same rank, and that for example all the slaves are equal but not that a slave and a citizen is of the same rank. You know, it's just like that you are equal among your peers. And it was like, that was the rule among equals so that no citizen was more worth than another citizen, but it was not a totally equal society. And uh, we have to be aware of that. So to put it, to put it in a nutshell, what we talked about today, uh, Julian, you said, you pointed out that Aristotle's organon uh, gave the, like the birth to formal scientific logics we mm. saw that we saw that already plato used this logic so it's what it was not the use of logic was not something new but the systematic the system writing down systematically what logic means and what what ways what what ways of reasoning we do have to to, to put this systematic scheme it was he was the first one to do this to do this scientific approach. And so, of course, he is like the founder of the scientific reasoning, the scientific logic. And he shaped this very much because the way he understood logic was used in antiquity. It was also used in the Middle Ages. The scholastic philosophy still used Aristotelian reasoning. It was used until Francis Bacon in the Renaissance actually said, hey, people, we need to also use inductive reasoning and science because with deductive reasoning, you can all, all only prove what you already found, but you cannot find new things. So Aristotle's de deduction as, as the only right way of logic uh, survived for a very, very, very long time. And it is still until today, it's just like that the, the, the deduction is the better way of reasoning you have because induction always means that you can only assume something but you never can be sure that it really is this way because you can only say as, as Kant said until now we do not have any exception to this rule but it does not mean that there is no exception so uh, Aristotle gave this foundation then you, Julian you showed us that uh, about his ethics um, you know he, he wrote he wrote three books on ethics and we looked at the Nicomachean ethics and you showed us uh, about courage, which was very interesting because the way you presented it, we could see on the one hand, the, continue, the con continuosity of the development of, of the term courage, but also the difference because, on the, because courage for Plato as for Aristotle 
uh, deals with fear, like the question of of what of uh, of what is what what is fearful, or do we have how do we have to have a stance uh, to the to the fear, but seemingly in the overall reply of Aristotle is a bit different because for Plato it is like you are courageous if you are a, if you know of what is dangerous or what is and what is not and what you know what what you have to fear of and for Aristotle it is like you have different parameters and if you are too fearful if you only only live in fear you will not be able to to make courageous decisions nonetheless it seems like um, also that if you have uh, if you have no respect for 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 the danger then you cannot act courageous in a certain way so you do have certain parameters and if one of these parameters strives too far into an extreme you have the problem that you generally tend to get into a certain extreme so to be courageous you you have to you have you have to bring the different parameters into harmony um, sadly, we could not discuss everything in detail because it is a really uh, it would be an overload for for everyone. And as I said, even those scholars who did research for a very very long time, they still find some something new inside it because it is because it is so detailed. But we but we can see that the middle way or the medial is the ideal way to act virtuous, arete, and the work. Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics strives towards answering the question, what is the highest good? <clears throat> so the whole, whole work, all the books inside this Nicomachean ethics strive towards answering step-by-step step this question. And so when we talked about book 10, we had also to put, like, to put book three into consideration because there are basics in other, chap in other books that will that you need to understand the last book, so it is a really really a built step by step, reasoned very profoundly, which very systematically. Um, so this is something something which is which is new with Plato and Aristotle, because about the ones we know before the pre-Socratic philosophers, and today we only have fragments, which means we do not have. We do not have uh, the full works and we do not have like the full reasoning of them because we only know certain phrases or certain sayings from them. Them And with Plato and Aristotle, we have a really a full oeuvre. We do have many, many books. Exactly. They, right. Yes, they probably are not complete, but, but we, there might be a lost work. We do not know. But, uh, but, they, but they are, we really do have an oeuvre that we can look at and we can see the systematics. And of course, with Aristotle, it is very important because he builds up step by step. And it is good if you have the whole manuscript to know actually what he builds on. Mm -hmm. And, and I think I have to excuse myself um, I, I, um, because I, I, um, I have to break the, the dialogue now, but my, I have to, um, have to do, uh, go. Uh, my, my dad is uh, now here too. Sure. We, we, come, we come to an end right now. Uh, I think we said everything. And of course, we talked for a long time, so it is it is it is time, let's say, to to close this episode. Um, 
is there anything you want to add, Julian? No. Okay, then thank you for listening this to this podcast. Thank you to my guest, uh, Julian Sita. Uh, it was very insightful and it was really, it was, a, it was great that you had your debut <laughs> in, in, our, in our podcast. We are very, we are very uh, happy that you chose us to where you want to explain Aristotle. Um, and don't forget, don't forget to share the link of this episode to give us a like to comment and to tell about uh, tell your friends about this podcast so that we can if because if you like this podcast it would be great if you help us in reaching a greater target a greater audience so that would be very great and see you or better hear you next time bye goodbye see you next time have a nice